0: First Samuel ten. We got all the way to verse sixteen of First Samuel ten. My intention tonight is to go first Samuel ten, verse seventeen, through chapter eleven. And there's some you know, there are some funky stories in the Old Testament and the new as well. But this is one of them. I mean, the book of First Samuel just collects some real gobstoppers of stories. I mean they're clearly history here. But they're also really just fun to read. I mean, they're just weird. And this is part of one. We see that here. But let me get you up to speed if you've kind of not been here the last week too. It says in chapter 8, by the way, the people got really tired of looking not like the rest of the world. And they wanted to start looking like the world again. We're so tired of being uh, feeling odd, feeling like the outsider, the outcast, the castaway. And so I, I, I just... We want to be like everyone else. Tired of feeling like the doofus. Their estimation is this. Make, give us a king. We want someone tangible to bow to. Because that's what the world does. They bow to tangible things. I want to do the same. And they give four basic reasons of what they want of this king. To be like other nations. The first of them. That he would judge us, go out before us, and fight our battles. That was the people's estimation. God's estimation responds in 8-7. With this, they haven't rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me that I should not reign over them. The whole issue of people running to the tangible is running from God to do so. And to, I mean, it's one thing to go and get something. It's another thing to bow to it. And he says, Sammy, you better tell the people, warn them, and on six occasions, that if you get a king, he's going to take. He's going to take, he's going to take, he's going to take. He's going to take your sons, the best of your sons, your daughters, your land, your bread and wine, your male servants, your female servants, your livestock. Man, if it's good, he's going to take it for his own. And the people are like, yeah, 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 sure, whatever. Well, we we still want a king. It hasn't changed our minds. And then God moves us to a person that up to this point has been roughly in obscurity. He was a son of a wealthy man, that's clear. He's a Benjamite. That means of the twelve tribes, he's from the tribe of Benjamin. That is, of the twelve tribes, the youngest of the twelve. And the dad lost his donkeys. They are the engineers of the Middle East. Donkeys are important. They're the ones who still to this day in the Middle East carve out roads, They always have this sure-footed way of finding the best path down a hill. Follow a donkey, don't follow a horse. And the donkeys were lost. So this son, his name is literally sought for or desired, Saul or Shual, goes to find them with a servant. He can't seem to find them. And he turns to the servant and says, hey, uh, well, by this point, Dad's going to be less concerned about the donkeys and he's going to be concerned about me. I better get back, which tells us a little bit of the relationship between him and his dad. And the guy, the servant, says, well, you know, there's this, this prophet. We should go check with him. Saul's response is, well, you know, that's kind of weird. We don't have anything to give him. A little strange to me to think you have to go to a prophet and pay him. I, and I get the idea of he's for, he's a for-profit prophet. and and in that he's like, well, what do you got? And the servant's like, well, I I got thirty-five pounds, roughly. And he's like, okay, well, that'll work. And and by the way, we don't ever see that ever pays them. And they go and they go into the town, and as they go into the town, they ask the girls, and they're like, he's up that way, and they go up there, and they ask this guy, excuse me, can you? Tell me where the prophet is. And and actually, it happens to be the prophet, which tells us a little bit about what Samuel looks like. He obviously doesn't pull off the prophet thing. He doesn't go, okay, well, we're and prophet things here. Because then you wouldn't have to ask which one was the prophet. You just go, well, that's clearly him. But they ask, and he's like, oh, yeah, well, and to whom does the whole desire, that's a play on his name, who does whom the whole desire of Israel rest upon but you? Now, I remind you, this was just some guy that was looking for donkeys, which I think God was playing off to say this is much like my nation. They're kind of... A bunch of wandering donkeys. But in that, he's like, well, in, in, I just went on this errand. I had no idea that he'd go to sleep that night A King. Now, please hear me. He says, there are going to be some strange signs. So this prophet says, oh, by the way, the donkeys have been found. Uh, that, by the way, kind of is a sign to make sure that you realize this guy's not just being a weirdo. And in that, he goes, now, here are some signs you're going to look for. First of all, there's a guy carrying three goats. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen young goats before, but if you've ever seen them, they look like they got springs for legs. Any guy carrying three of them is a miracle. Uh, anyways, and there's some guys that have bread and wine. The guy's going to give you a couple loaves of bread. Take the loaves of bread. And then, by the way, after all of that, uh, you know, but first of all, before that, you're going to find someone that's going to say, hey, by the way, the donkeys you're looking for have been found. Then you're going to see these guys take the loaves of bread. And then some prophets are going to come near you by the garrison of the Philistines. And the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and you're going to be turned into a whole new guy. And when these signs come to pass, understand this was God's part to prove that he knew what he was talking about. But then he said, when these things happen, here's your part. Go down to Gilgal, which was the place where Israel consecrated themselves. And go down there and offer two specific sacrifices. Now listen closely. Go down to Gilgal, and these are the two sacrifices in order. I want you to offer a burnt sacrifice. A burnt sacrifice is the only one where the entire animal was completely burned. And the idea of it was total surrender. If you're going to lead my people, I want there to be a total surrender. No partial surrender here. I want everything to be mine. And then second, a peace offering. That's one of my favorites because the peace offering is where you offer the parts that no one eats unless you're Scottish. And then the other parts you cook up in essence and you share with everyone else because you've made peace with God. Now, understand, the first one was internal, the second was external. The first, if you will, was vertical, the second was horizontal. The first one was, God, I want to give you everything, and once that happens, now, hey, everybody, I'm right with God, let's celebrate. But Saul doesn't go down to Gilgal. Instead, he goes up to a high place, where his uncle seems to be. Now, the odd part about it to me is the guy's got to be, have, have a couple loaves of bread with him, and Samuel covered him in oil. Now, I don't know about you, but if, let's say, I sent Adam to go looking for some donkeys that had been lost, and he comes back and he's all totally shiny, covered in oil, with a couple of fresh loaves of bread, there might be a part of me that asks, what happened to you? But Saul doesn't tell him. All he says is, well, the prophet actually said that the donkeys had been found, but he didn't say anything about the kingdom whatsoever. Now, that's our first hint here. And again, what we learn about this guy that's the first physical king of Israel this is a guy with a fantastic calling, but no consecration Now you cannot pick your calling. I didn't pick mine. Now, I am not complaining. I love being a pastor. I was not for a second. Have I ever not loved it? There have been funky moments where people have been people. But, but in that, it's like and you go, well, OK, this moment isn't the coolest moment I've ever lived, but I've never not loved being a pastor. And I didn't sign up for it, I didn't register, I didn't go and take some courses or anything like that. In the, in the beginning, in the end of it all, the moment I said yes to Jesus, God just said, I've called you into ministry, I'm making you a minister. And I had no idea what that meant. In those days, the only things I ever knew about were priests, and I knew I wasn't going to be one of those guys. I love that I get to do that, but that calling was not my responsibility. That was God's job to do. Now, I can invest in it, be equipped in it by His Word the power of His Holy Spirit, be in fellowship to let God develop. I love those things. But there is a part that's my choice. That's whether I want my heart to be consecrated or not. Whether I really want to give God everything or not. I can fight His calling. I can fight His consecration in my own life, seeking to make me separate from the rest of the world. I can fight all of that. But I'd be a fool to so Saul doesn't. And we see that already with him not telling his uncle. So now all of a sudden there's this best kept secret. And there's, I mean, it's one thing to have a secret like God's like, hey, by the way, tomorrow you're going to discover money in your mailbox. That would be great. But this is another thing to say, by the way, tomorrow you're going to wake up and the queen's going to is going to hand over, the abrogate her throne and give it to you. Now that's an entirely different thing. You'd think it would be weird to tell anyone that because it's such a bizarre thought. Who would believe you anyway? But it was the prophet who said it, and I remind you, clearly, very weird signs on the way to it have clearly clarified it. Now, with that, that takes us to chapter chapter ten, verse seventeen. I'm going to go through the first verse, and develop it for just a moment to give us background, a little backstory, and then the pick, then the rest of it will pick up quite quickly. Then Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. Saul is about now to publicly coronate, I'm sorry, Samuel, the prophet, is about to publicly coronate Saul. He's going to make him king in front of everyone. Which, by the way, wouldn't that be quite a surprise to the uncle that Saul told nothing to? But why Mizpah? And here's why it's so important as we kind of get into our story. The last time we saw Mizpah, for what it's worth, really was just a few chapters ago, 1 Samuel 7, when the people openly after the ark had been returned after their loss with the fight of the philistines they threw their lives before god and said god please give us victory and god then at mizpah when they poured the water on the ground and told god if you remember we have sinned then god gives them this fantastic victory over the philistines so it makes sense to meet there because the last time we met there we were going to fight the philistines and we really kind of needed god's help well really we needed his victory but the time before that was even more profound, and of course it sets the setting for all of our story today. And forgive me, this is certainly not the sort of, you know, rated U portion of text. At the end of the book of Judges, we are now looking at well, roughly less than 100 years from this point where we're looking now, God told us there was no king in Israel. And I remind you, no king means that God wasn't their king either, in their opinion. And it says that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, it isn't like everyone did what was wrong in their own eyes. They did what they thought was right. So when God records things here, people thought they were doing what was right. And there was a Levite. That's a guy who basically was a servant of the temple, or should have been. But now he's wandering in for hire instead. And he's got a concubine. Now, do you know what a concubine is? It's a person if you will, it's like a live-in prostitute. A concubine is somebody, basically, pardon me for saying, it's like where you get all your milk for free, but you don't have to buy the cow. It's somebody where you have no marriage obligation to, and yet you have all the sort of benefits of marriage without any commitment. The reason I say that, nowhere in Scripture does God ever tell anyone that they should have a concubine. Nowhere in Scripture does God ever say, no concubines, here's some rules about what the best concubines to get. Because God knows that's entirely out of the way he intended things to be this guy already that's supposed to be set apart to serve in the church, if you will, is a guy that's got this girl on the side, this living girlfriend. But then he gets hired and he kind of runs off with these people. And ultimately she runs back to dad and he goes to get her. And when he comes back with her, they have two cities. It's getting dark, and they have to stay somewhere. They're looking, if you will, they're looking for a and b Now, in those days, the way you did it is sort of sat by the well or a public marketplace, and somebody offered you hospitality. And on one side is a Gentile community, and the other is a community from the tribe of Benjamin. They go, it's getting late. She says, we should go into this town. He goes, no, 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 that's a Gentile territory. We need to go into a Jewish community. So they go into this Jewish community from the tribe of Benjamin called Geben. Now, it gets even weirder. This whole story, I mean, it's like, again, I remind you, the most crazy part about this is people are doing what is right in their own eyes. When they get there, ultimately what happens is the crowd views this guy and his concubine and the crowd of people that are living in the community eye the guy and say, "Woo, he's hot and something. And all of a sudden they're banging on the door of a guy that lets them into their house saying, we want to have sex with this guy. And this guy's staying there and his host is like, you can't do that. And this guy, that this Levite, throws his concubine out for her to be ravished by all of these people. And they rape her to death. Now, I, I warned you, it was going to be a little bit graphic. And she dies with her hand on the, on, the, uh, on the threshold of the door. In the morning, I can't even imagine the screams and the horrible sounds that would be outside that door while you're in this little house trying to sleep. He opens the door and there she is dead before him. And if you think that wasn't bad enough, and forgive me for being graphic. I'm just preparing us for our text, which isn't as weird. But it is weird. He hacks her into pieces. And he sends body parts, her body parts, all over the other tribes of Israel. And everyone freaks out. Imagine, if you will, an arm shows up at your door. And all of Israel gathers together and says, who did this crazy thing? We've never seen anything like this before. And they gather together at Mizpah. And he says, look at, There's a group of people. And he tells the story. And they're like, we need to take these offenders down. This is not tolerable. So they show up at Gibeah, And the people, the Benjamites, are like, no way. You guys, you can't have these guys. We as a whole tribal fight against you. And they do. In all of, 11 tribes against this one tribe. And they kill all but 600 Benjamites. And then they freak out. They're like, we've almost killed an entire clan of our people, an entire tribe of our people. Is this weird? It's weird, right? Can we all agree this is weird? Here's the crazy part about it, I remind you. Everyone thinks that what they're doing is right in their own eyes. This whole thing seems right. They're like, yeah, 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 that's right. Really? No. As if that weren't weird enough. I could have kept saying that through this whole thing, if that weren't weird enough. Then they're like, Oh my goodness, we almost exterminated one of our tribes. Okay, let's stop doing this. We've got six hundred Benjamites left. What do we do? How do we let these guys repopulate so we get the tribe back? Well we told everyone that if anyone that look at anyone who doesn't come out to fight against Israel against the Benjamites, we're gonna just kill them instead. They have killed not only the men, but they've killed everyone. And all that's left in Benjamin are 600 fellas. They go, well, what do we do? They said, well, you know, what's crazy is, and this is Judges 21, there was this one town and nobody showed up to fight with us. There was a whole town and none of the guys came to join our army. Now, please hear the name. Yabesh Gilead. J.G. Yabesh Gilead. So you know what they did? They killed all the men in that town. And everyone else who wasn't a virgin. To try to find 600 virgins to give to the 600 guys that were left that were from Benjamin. Does this sound crazy? I mean, and if that weren't weird enough, they only find 400. Two-thirds. So... 400 of the 600 guys get wives, or I'm sorry, get virgins from an assassinated city called yabesh Gilead. Now they're like, well, what do we do with the other 200 guys? Well, we told them we couldn't give them any of our daughters, but we have this kind of tradition where during one of the feasts, girls dance. So, how about if they just dance and we tell these other 200 guys, look at, if you like, I don't know, come and like kidnap a girl for yourself ah, bada boom, bada bing, I didn't give her to you. Because everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that's how Benjamin repopulated. 400 virgins that were taken from the slaughtered city of Yabesh Gilead and 200 girls that were dancing at a feast that got kidnapped and made as brides. You think that the Bible doesn't say that man is messed up? Man's messed up. And I wonder about the guys that got the 400 if they thought, man, if you're not out of waited for the dancing girls, I could have picked one. I mean, I don't know. I really don't know. But all of a sudden, now we're back at Mizpah. And Mizpah was where they went to meet for battle. Are you, are you, did that kind of freak you out? It that kind of weird you out? So hear me. Mizpah is where we gathered to destroy Benjamin and then freaked out and realized we didn't. Yabesh Gilead was the town where 400 of the 600 girls were brought for the guys to repopulate. Does that make sense? Are you with me on that? I remind you, Saul, this king, is from the tribe of Benjamin. Which means that it's two-thirds of a chance that his grandma came from Jabesh Gilead because she would have been one of the 400 gals. Does that make sense? She would have been one of the gals that helped populate two-thirds of Benjamin. Why is that important? We'll see here in a moment why. Samuel's calling is going to coronate Saul. Saul, by the way, I remind you, has kept silence about this great thing. And we read this now. He calls all the people together at Mizpah. The last time we were here, we were going to take down Benjamin. Strangely enough, now we're going to lift up a guy to be king over us from the tribe. Verse 18. And he said to the children of Israel, this is Samuel. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up out of Egypt. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms who oppressed you. And it's important to recognize they want somebody who's going to fight their battles. God's like, uh, and they want someone who's going to judge them. God's like, I have a perfect track record. Why are you turning from me? Verse 19, but today you've rejected your God, who himself saved you from all your adversaries and all your tribulations. And you have said to him, no, 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 set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. Let's get everyone to meet here. We're going to, we're going to pick you out a king today. Now, let me ask you something. According to verse 19, can God be rejected? You tell me. Look at verse 19. Can God be rejected? Samuel says they did. In Acts 7.51, Stephen says you always resist the Holy Spirit. In Luke 7.30, it says that the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves. God's will can be rejected, and it has been. God's Holy Spirit can be resisted, and clearly God can be rejected. That's in Scripture. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. My suggestion, though, is don't reject Him. Don't resist His Holy Spirit, and don't reject God's will. You would be a fool to do so. Now, it tells us in Proverbs 16.33 that the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. And that's what they traditionally do is draw, is they cast lots. Now, in the first case, you've got 12 tribes, you get 12 straws, and you kind of have everyone, if you will, the leader pick one, and the one with the short end of the straw, or however that is, would be the one that's like, we're going down to that tribe, and we'll really start narrowing it down as you go. So, verse 20. When Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. There's our tribe. Clearly the smallest of them. And when... It caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families. Now we're going to separate it by families. The family of Matri was chosen. By the way, that name means God reigns. And then, of course, ultimately Saul, the son of Kish, was chosen. But when they saw him, he couldn't be found. Therefore, they inquired of the Lord further, Where in the world is he? Has he come here yet? And the Lord answered. The Lord answered. Not just someone said, There he is. The Lord answered, There he is, hidden among the equipment. How in the world do you really think you can hide from God? And it says in verse 23 that they ran and brought him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is that there is no one like him among the people. And the people shouted, even as we might hear. Well, not at the moment because we have the queen. but They shouted, long live the king. Now. The average height. Of an Israelite, three thousand years ago, was between five four and five six. So who here is between five four and five six? You're at five, the top of five six, right? Hugo, you're probably right at about five four, somewhere there. So Hugo, stand up for a second. Kind, why don't we put you in the hall? This is not to humiliate you. I like it. You're on your tiptoes. Let's say this is the average height of a fella back in the days of Israel. Now, I'd like you just to look at this. Look at where he stands to me. My head just kind of fits on top of his. Are you with me so far? Now, the reason I say that is I am not, at I, I, best, I'm a head taller than him. Does that make sense? Now, head and shoulders adds another half of my head. So that puts a person about right here. Now take a look at this. You've had friends this tall. Yes. Now, everyone else is Hugo's height. Everyone else. And Saul is this tall. So, let's do it right. That's about that. Now come here. Well, I better go a little bit lower, right? Let's see. Um, About right There. There's our difference. Everyone get that image in their head. This is the guy they're going to pick. Now, never forget that later on when Saul disguises himself. Everyone else is this tall. And he's the only Israeli basketball player on the team. How does a guy like this disguise himself to anyone? Does he walk on his knees? Okay. Thank you. Now, there's a debate over this. Because They're about to coronate the king, and he's hiding. The question is, is he being humble? Is he always just being humble? He doesn't want all the attention. Let me just make this really clear. When God has a calling on your life, you hiding from it is not humility. There is a huge difference between humility, false humility, and insecurity. False humility makes me important in front of you, makes me the issue in front of you. Insecurity makes you the issue in front of me. Real, honest humility makes me not the issue at all. Saul had clearly been told by a prophet. He had three crazy events to validate that, that we would call signs or wonders. He had it all to validate this. And he didn't tell anyone, I remind you, nor did he go and consecrate like he should have back in Gilgal with that, remember that burnt offering of total surrender and then the peace offering for everyone? No, now understand, here he is hiding. Hiding from your gifts, beloved, is not humility. It is disobedience. And you could say, but Lord... But the moment that you say, but Lord, you know you're in trouble. And God has... The problem is you're in this fellowship. And the only reason I say that is your pastor's a cheerleader in some ways. I mean, I want the very best for you. And I know God has called you to amazing things. And amazing things are not hiding among the stuff. You can only hide... Here's the funny thing. Though you're hiding among the stuff in front of other people... You can't hide from God. God still knows exactly where you're at. And what He knows is you're not where you're supposed to be. God's like, I've got a calling on your life. Don't let fear make you hide. Don't let what you think is, well, I'm just being humble. I'm just really trying to not make it about me. Look at the only thing God's going to hold you accountable to is obedience. And hiding from God is not obedience. No matter what it is. And here's the funny part. And the sight of man, the the giant among people, is going to be hiding. And imagine somewhere, he's kind of, how does a big guy like that, what kind of stuff is he hiding? What kind of equipment is he hiding behind? And the funny thing is, the word is kind of nebulous, it's not really totally defined. And the reason I say that is, because I think there's a lot of things we can hide behind to not do what God calls us to. We can hide behind our intellect, we can hide behind busy lives, We could hide behind things that we, some circumstances we could try to blame it on. We could hide it behind any excuse you want to try to give. Your background, your past, your mouth, your age. Somebody else has tried that in Scripture, and it hasn't worked for them. I don't see how it's going to work for you. There's nothing amazing about me other than Jesus. And the fun thing is, all I did is, like, listen, just to be where I'm at, I just said yes. God said it, and I said yes, and that was enough. What if we lived our lives saying yes to Him when He called us? Well, but maybe that would cause us to make crazy changes. Well, He'll make the changes. Well, maybe He'll pull me out and make me, give, my, give me a crazy life. Probably. But it's the coolest crazy life you can live. Would you rather just die in mundanity, in monotonous nothingness, It's like make your whole life a purgatory and then stand before God at the end and go, you know, there's so much that could have happened, but I just really would rather just live an ordinary life. There's no such thing as ordinary. The one who created the heavens and the earth, the one who created all of the universe, lives inside of you now. How in the world could you be ordinary? He's got a calling on your life, beloved. Follow him. Follow him at the expense of everything else, but follow him. I guarantee you, he's not going to destroy your marriage for it. He's not going to destroy your life for it. What he's going to do is give you a better one. He's going to do amazing things with your life. But stop hiding. Well, with this, of course, the guy says, I remind you, it's only going to be a few chapters, by the way, that a giant's going to come and stand before them, of the Philistines. They've known this because even when Israel refused to take the land, back in the book of Numbers... 400 years ago, the people said we're like grasshoppers compared to those giant people. So you can understand why a big guy would be a good thing. Oddly enough, when the giant shows up, this guy's not going to fight. You know why? Because his heart's not consecrated. He may have all the natural warehouse, but he doesn't have the supernatural warehouse of actually surrendering to God like he should. It's all available to him. All you need to do is surrender Interesting, their first response, of course, in verse 24, is long live the king. Why is that a little odd? Because before that, you didn't have to say that when God's your king, you never have to say long live him. I get that. Verse 25, then Samuel explained to the people the behavior of royalty. Remember that whole, he will take, he will take, your sons, daughters, best of your land, bread, wine, male servants, female servants, livestock. He's going to take all of that. And he wrote it in a book and laid it up before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people, every man to his house. Verse 26, so Saul also went home to Gebeah. Saul went home after this. And valiant men went with him, whose hearts God had touched. But some of the rebels said, how can this man save us? So they despised him, and they brought him no presents. What a sad birthday party that was. Oh, well, we have no birthday party. You get the idea here. They were, but it says, but he held his peace. The term for valiant, by the way, is is the word that means army or strong. The question is, why did a bunch of strong army men go and follow Saul? Who were they? They were secret service. Now that you have a king, guess what you have to do with it? You have to protect it. Interesting, the guy that's supposed to fight your battles and go before you and all that stuff and represent you, has to be protected. Here's the difference, by the way, of letting God be the Lord and anyone else. No matter what else is something that you make an idol, you'll spend all your time protecting it. You let God be your leader, your Lord, he'll spend all of his time protecting you. It's a good, I I prefer that, how about you? But it gets funnier for me here in a moment, because now we're going to actually see the one good moment, if you will, potentially good moment on the outside of Saul, but here's the problem, I warn you, an unconsecrated heart always will make its way to the surface sooner or later. Even if there are, there will, that doesn't mean that an unconsecrated heart doesn't do good things. But in the end of it all, that will win. It may have good moments, but a heart unsurrendered to God will be manifest sooner or later. It'll find you out. So, chapter 11, verse 1. Then Nakhash. Say that name with me. Nakhash. Try that. Nakhash. You're gonna come, give me some good chutzpah. Nakhash. Now, listen. Do you remember the name Phinehas? Phinehas? Do you remember what the name meant? Serpent mouth. You want to guess what Nachash means? Serpent. Who names their kid Serpent? Oh, look, honey. Looks like your mother. Let's name him Serpent. No, I mean... Okay, you name your kid now. Did he, like, was he born with his lip? I don't know. But they name him Serpent. And I think there's something to that. He's an Ammonite in verse 1. The Ammonite came up and encamped against Jebesh Gilead and all the men of Jebesh Gilead. Wait a minute, Jebesh Gilead, does that name sound familiar? Jebesh Gilead, wait a minute, do you remember what happened in Jebesh Gilead? 400 virgins were taken from that slaughtered city to repopulate Benjamin. Two-thirds likely that one of them is a relative of Saul. This is the place that he's going to go, this Nechash wants to go after. Can you see why that would mean something to Saul. Well, Nechash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Yabesh Gilead. And all the men of Yabesh said to Nechash, Make a covenant with us and we'll serve you. Nechash the Ammonite answered and said, On this condition I will make a covenant with you, that I may put out all of your right eyeballs and bring reproach on all Israel. And the elders of Yabesh said to him, Well, hold off for seven days, that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel, and if there is no one to save us, we'll come out to you. Now, is this an odd, strange situation to you? Because it is to me. Now, we are in the area of the Ammonites. Now, that is the northern area of Israel to the east of it. So, if you will, kind of the area of Syria, just east of Lebanon. Uh, now, we do know this. A few hundred years ago, back in the book of Judges, there was a guy named Yephthah, And he took on these guys and he really crushed them hard. So there's a bit of a grudge match here. I get that. He wants to kind of go the area east of the Golan Heights today. Now, now I get this. This king now has kind of risen up. His name is Serpent and he's going to take these guys down. So he says, okay, look at, and they were apparently no threat for a few hundred years. Because of this Yepsa guy who really took him down, but now they've kind of risen up again, and then they kind of look, and they're like, and the guy's like, yeah, I want to kill you. And they're like, oh come on, can't we just talk peace? He's like, okay, but on one condition, I get your right eyeballs. Why right eyeballs? Why not your nose? Why not both your eyeballs? Well first of all, let's be honest. In the situation here, he wants servants, and blind servants, well, an army of blind servants may not necessarily be as beneficial to you, perhaps, as ones who have at least partial sight. But why the right eyeball? Why not the left eyeball? Well, let's just say that the average guy is not left-handed, but right-handed. That would make the most sense, wouldn't it? So come here for a second. Here's Hugo. Hugo is right-handed. You're left-handed, aren't you? Are you really? I've... Okay, then let's bring Deborah up. Deborah's right handed. Is this really? This is beautiful. Marcia, may I borrow you for a second? That was really cute. I am not left handed. All right, so here's Marcia. Let's say she's the average fighter, she's the average soldier. Roughly about the height of an average Israeli of the day. Look at that. You're styling. All right, now, with that in mind, let's say that what are the two sort of major accessories of a soldier in those days. What are the two things that every soldier really needs? Excellent. A sword and a shield. Now, which hand do you put the sword in and which hand do you put the shield in? Sword in the right because that's her strong hand and the shield, how's that? In her left. Does that make sense so far? Now, when you were to approach, you would guard part of your face with your shield. Which part of your face would you guard? The left side, because that's where her hand is. So she can see with the other. So which eyeball sees past the shield? Your right eyeball. You pluck out the right eyeball, there goes your shield. Does that make sense? Thank you, Marissa. Well done. So this serpent character says, here's the deal. You want to make peace with me? Take away your shield. Now, in the book of Ephesians, those of you who are familiar with the New Testament, and we see the full armor of God. We read about the helmet of salvation, feet shot in the, in the gospel of peace, you know, our loins guarded, you know, thank you, guarded with the truth, breastplate of righteousness. What is the shield of? Faith. Trust. seems like you want to make peace with me? The serpent says, You want to make peace with me? Give me your faith. Give me your trust. Just take away your trust. and this is the way I can do it. All I have to do is muck with what you see. Now, you're probably aware of the fact that two eyeballs are better than one for a handful of reasons. Obviously, we see in stereo. Do you know what happens if one of the eyes doesn't work? What, one, of the, one of the first things you lose? Depth perception. You lose all your depth perception. Your depth perception, it takes two eyes to see what is actually close and what is far. You lose perspective. Do you know what happens when you lose, when you give up your trust? You lose perspective. Things look huge that aren't, things look small that aren't. And all of a sudden, unimportant things become really important. And things that are important become very unimportant. But hey, it's all right because at least I'm not making battle. I'm not, I don't have to fight the serpent like I feel like I would have to otherwise. The problem is that guy's been defeated. And he'd already been that hole. They were no threat for hundreds of years. So, don't you find it interesting, though? This king's like, okay, well, we can talk peace, but let me have all your right eyeballs. And they're like, can we have a week to go find someone to save us or not? Now, if you were the other king, would you go, no, 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 let's just work this out right now. But no, it's like the king, he's so proud. He's like, yeah, yeah, like you're going to be a any threat. Go ahead, take your week. Go see if you can find someone to deliver you. You follow me? Have, we, have I lost any of you? Does this make sense? Because I mean, it's, you know, I can't make this stuff up. Okay, now listen. So the elders said, "Hold off for seven days." Verse four. Now the messengers came to Gebeah of Saul. That's where Saul is. That's his house, and told the news in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. And now there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field. And Saul said, "Well, what troubles the people that they weep?" No, wait, wait, wait a minute. And they told him the words of the men of Yabesh. And the Spirit came upon Saul, and when he heard this news, his anger was greatly aroused. And he took a yoke of oxen, cut them in pieces, and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hands of the messenger, saying, Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel in battle, so what shall be done to their oxen? Does that sound familiar, that whole cutting things into pieces and sending it out? That's kind of why I had to give you that horrible story in the beginning. And then the fear of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out with one consent. Now, now, Follow me on this for a second, because there's some really strange things to me on this. First of all, what is Saul doing when the news reaches his ears? He's plowing. He's in the field. Here's my first question. Whatever happened to all of those secret service guys? What are they doing while Saul's plowing? That seems a little strange to me. Are they watching? Are they guarding while he's plowing? It seems a strange thing for a king to be doing at this moment. He's not assuming his title, is he? Second... Did you notice that when the messengers came, they didn't come to Saul? Did you notice that? They came to the rest of the people. The people cry. And what Saul says is, I hear a lot of people. Why are all these people crying? You'd think if Saul was really being a king, wouldn't they have come to him? Wouldn't they have said, hey, remember how you were been ordained king in front of everybody? Well, I think this is a good time to step it up, buddy. Well, no, nothing like that. They wouldn't have told the people, which tells me that even Saul himself didn't assume the position in a way that the people would come to him. I think that's really odd. Now, in the New Testament, by the way, there are some guys that are, by the way, guys that we really even hold in high regard, like Timothy, that Paul is constantly telling him, buddy, step up. Paul in the New Testament has this guy, and in essence, he's just someone that he's been investing. He was discipling, and Paul hands the baton over and says, hey, now, look, at you need to do this. I'm in prison. But Timothy's freaking out. Titus the same and a guy named Archippus he says, Tell that guy, get busy with what God's called him to do. Interesting, with Timothy, he's like, Hey, look at get into a bunch of people lay hands on you and prophesy. Weren't there crazy things to validate the calling God has put on your life? Why are you so scared? Because your focus is on you. When your focus is on the Lord, you expect great things. When your focus is on you, you're really afraid. Now I learned this surfing. That when it comes to certain things in life, it's by the way, it applies perfectly to marriage and to ministry, that the worst thing you do is kind of commit. When a wave starts coming, there's a point where it breaks. And by that point, you've got to commit to get in that wave. If you don't, what happens is the wave actually throws you, When we call it getting pearled, and you it throws you, and then you land in the water, and then the, the wave goes, and then pushes you down, like runs over you with a giant lorry is the feeling. It's like a building landing on you of water. Then you think with well, water, it can't be that heavy. I thought that too until it landed on me. The point is, there's a moment where you're like, No, either I pull out or I put in, but I can't do both. And you can't be you can't be in marriage without full commitment, and you can't be in ministry without it either. If you kinda of pull in but pull out and pull in, you're gonna get pitched. And it's gonna hurt. The bottom line is, even if you go down and you actually commit in, you still might get worked by the wave. But the good news is, at least it's not your fault. Then you know what you do? You shake it off and you get back up and you take on the next wave. I recognize that. In this situation, Saul, somewhere in all of this, now at this point he's had a prophet tell him, he's been anointed, he's been anointed in front of a group of people that he had this special feast for, then these crazy signs validated, and now he's inaugurated him in front of everyone, but he's still somehow in all of it, maybe he just doesn't know what it means to be a king, although remember, he told him the ways of the king and they wrote it down in a book, you'd at least think Saul would be trying to read the manual. And at this point now, this situation arises, and Saul's going to do something about it. And hear me, the Holy Spirit comes upon him, and he gets angry. And that really affects me, beloved. And the reason it affects me is I realize that not all anger is sin. It actually says, by the way, in Psalm 4.4, be angry, but do not sin. So that tells me I can be angry and not sin. I find that interesting. And I ask myself, as I've been reading this text over and over this week, when was the last time something really made me angry that I could say was the Lord's doing? Not the thing that made me angry, but the Lord's response. When was the last time the Lord would have gotten angry and that should make me angry? I'm not talking about someone cutting the queue or took my whatever it is that I wanted or something that's clearly selfish. But when I see somebody lying about Jesus or using His name in vain, why am I not angry about that anymore? When I see people that are clearly toting lies and I see the church sleeping, why doesn't that make me angry? In a case like this where I see... People that are God's people making covenants with the enemy by being silent and removing their faith in a living God and trying to trust in quote-unquote experts otherwhere or these other things they dish their their trust on that clearly stands against God. Why does that not make me angry? Because it should. Am I really at the point where I've numbed myself so much that the very things that flick their nose at the face of my God now don't bother me? Because this was one of, this was Saul's good moment. And he got angry. I think God make, give me a righteous anger. Not one to make me stupid, not one to make me just nasty, but one to to, to motivate me to do something to change it. Not to be angry at the church, but to be angry at the sin that pervades, or the leaven that pervades, or the apathy that pervades, like we sung about, that God would make me in a place that's like, God make me make a difference. Saul cuts this, these oxen to pieces and he's like this. Well, there's no way this guy's going to go back to plowing with them, is it? And he sends the parts out and then in verse 80 he numbers them in Bezek. Bezek, by the way, means lightning. The last time we saw this place was the beginning of Judges. was the first place that was conquered in Judges when we see the first judge step up off you. The children of Israel were 300,000. The men of Judah, interestingly listed separately, were 30. That's 330,000. People in their army. That's a big army. It's a third of a million people. Then the messengers came thus, and they of course have to tell the men of Yabesh Gilead. Thus you shall say to the men of Yebesh Gilead, tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have help. Then the messengers came and reported it to the men of Yabesh, and they were glad, wouldn't you be? And they said, otherwise you're about to lose your eyeball. Then the men of Yabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out to you and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. So tomorrow we're going to close this deal down, they say then to Nehash. So it was on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies in equal portions, if you will. That's 110,000 people per portion. That's a pretty big army. They came into the midst of the camp in the morning at the morning watch. The morning watch, by the way, you can argue with that's the fourth watch. That's three to six in the morning or the first one from six to nine, I tend to prefer the fourth watch because it's the watch, and by the time the sun rises, the watch gets smaller, nonetheless. It's clear as it's the morning, and in the morning, they killed the Ammonites until the heat of day. And it happened that those who survived were scattered, that not two of them were left together. All of a sudden, the enemy and his army were vanquished by a unified army because one person that the Holy Spirit had come upon, was willing to be angry about what the enemy was doing. And what would happen if that happened to us? Well, we were so motivated. It's crazy how the measures that had to be taken to sort of jolt the people back into action. Finally, in verse 12, The people came to Samuel, and they said "Then after this victory, Saul shall, remember those, who are those people who said Saul shall reign over us? Remember those guys who didn't bring presents? Bring those men that we put them to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death to this day, for today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. They're like, why do you want to kill our own? Don't miss this. Immediately, the moment that God starts bringing victory, someone wants to start dividing the camp again. But look at our last two verses, and this is the ominous trailer that gives us the cliffhanger to realize that not everything's still right, if you will. Samuel says to the people, Come now, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So the people, all the people, went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal, and there they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Sounds pleasant, doesn't it? But first of all, wasn't Saul already supposed to have gone to Gilgal to consecrate his heart? Did you notice here? Samuel was the one telling all the people to go there a second time. So he says, Come on, you guys, let's all go to Gilgal and we consecrate our hearts. Let's renew the kingdom there. You know what's really interesting? Look at the two things they did in verse 15. Samuel was the one who demanded it, not Saul. Samuel said it to the people, not Saul. It was the people who made the offering. And it was the people, it says then, that made Saul king. You know the two things that happened in verse 15? Saul was elevated before the people. And the people made a sacrifice. Well, it says here they made a sacrifice of peace offering before the Lord. Wait a minute. How many offerings was Saul supposed to make? Do you remember? Two. Which one is missing? The burnt offering. And remember which one that was? That was this one. The one of total surrender to God. But this one was the public thing of saying, hey, everything's good with God and me. This is going to be, in essence, the very archetype, the emblem of Saul's life. It is that this is really good. We know how to play this well. This whole horizontal thing. But this isn't right, this relationship between me and God. It's the same thing that will happen to the religious leaders in Jesus' day. He called them whitewashed tombs. He says, on the outside, you guys look really pretty, whitewashed, you look really clean. But inside, you're full of dead man's bones. It won't be but a few chapters that God will actually say, as God's replacing Saul with his, obviously, his replacement. Man, looks at the outer appearance, but it's God who looks at the heart. That's why we could fool each other. You see, ultimately, even when Saul is to get fired, when he gets his P-45, he's going to be really concerned about this thing. This whole public appearance saving face. Because he's so concerned about what everyone else thinks, but he's not concerned about what God thinks. Beloved, let me ask you something. What about you? What's where I've had to go? You know, interesting, there's something I use a lot in my own personal walk, because it talks about worshipping the Lord... With the trumpet, the crashing of cymbals, but also with the harp. I have every harp that's in Scripture as far as the types of harps. They're in my office. You ever up where we are? I'll show you every one of them. They're all very quiet instruments. Very quiet instruments. It's like a guy with an acoustic guitar, it's not made for the masses. But trumpets and cymbals, they're loud instruments. Symbols, by the way, are not those big crashing ones like we'd say here, per se. Most of the symbols you see in those days were actually about the size of, of, a, of a palm of a bear's hand. But they, when they go ding, they go ding. That's really loud. It rings out through everything. And God says, I want worship in both. And I get it. I mean, as a songwriter, when I read about something that says, For the instrument of Gath on an eight-stringed harp, for instance, I kind of see a guy sitting alone on a quiet instrument between him and God. It's an intimate time. And then there are other times where it's something where it's like the full band is playing, and you realize this is something for the. Let's get the whole congregation in on this. Guys says I want both. But I've learned this: I can't have good trumpet time if I don't have good harp time. Harp times when it's me alone with the Lord, going, God, I just love you. It's just me and you. And if I can't get that right, the trumpet time where I'm with you guys and just kind of blowing that thing hard, it's going to be empty. It's going to be like Saul, where the shell is lovely, but inside's is nothing. And I would hate that for any of us. Let me ask you, when was the last time you genuinely worshipped? I'm not talking about singing, but I mean when you genuinely had time where you were alone with God and you just enjoyed Him. When no one's looking, no one else to check up on you, and you did it simply because you loved Him. Because He loved you. tonight, it's time for us to get right again. We are to learn from Saul. Because what we're going to see from this point on are how that unconsecrated heart surfaces. How it surfaces. And what that will look like for us if we were the people to do that. And my prayer is by next week when we get to that, our last week, Wednesday night in this building, that's next week right here, That when we get to that, we will read it as a Saul situation and not as an us situation. That that won't manifest in us because our hearts are right. Uh, Listen, there was a small period of time when I lived in Northern California and I worked at this repair shop. I was actually just the business manager. I was the guy that made sure all the things got paid and all that. Uh, but I remember there was this. There was a time when there was a specific brand that came out and it was it was big and everything was big and it was full of buttons and knobs and all kinds of things like that and the people would bring this stuff in and all the time we would kind of say it was a write off and I remember the first time I was like why are you writing all this stuff off people would pay all of this money and you know it would be these big councils like roughly the size of Hugo you know and they had all these buttons and you know, all this stuff and yeah, it doesn't really work you know my CD player doesn't work or whatever and then I remember the first time I cracked into one of those with one of the repairments. It was interesting. As big as it was, all of the machinery on it and all the circuitry was really a very little portion of it. It was just so well decorated on the outside, you really thought you were getting something great. Interesting, two-thirds of the weight, if not more, was actually weights, literally just weights that they stuck in the bottom of the thing to make it sound like or feel like you were getting something of value because it was heavier. But when you took out the weights, the thing you could hit yourself in the jaw by picking it up and I realized how beautiful it was on the outside. I mean, it's like if you were just take it from surface, this was the thing and you'd show it in your, whoa, look at how cool that is. But if you looked at the inside, the inside's like, this is wimpy. This is nothing. And I remember even then going, God, don't let my walk be this. Where it's got so many cool buzzes, you know, dials and all these buzzers and things from the outside that people would be like, look at those, look at those lights and those, wow, that's exciting. But inside, there's nothing to offer. We started this with everyone doing what was right in their own eyes. And look at how crazy that got. We ended this, by the way, in the place where we were supposed to be. And here's the crazy thing as we go to prayer. Saul was where he was supposed to be, kind of doing what he was supposed to on the outside, but doing nothing like he should have on the end. Are you aware of that? He was at the place that he was supposed to be. And outside, well, if he was any part of this sacrifice, things looked pretty good. They were doing a... I mean, let's face it. Look, at we seem to have peace with God because we have this victory over the Ammonites. Could that be just like now? We're in church. We're his people. We've made claim to Jesus. And we're kind of sitting there and we're nodding our heads and our Bibles are open. Our apps are open and we're agreeing with the text ideologically we recognize that this is truth. But is there a part of us that's willing to say tonight, burnt sacrifice, God burnt, all of it. In that place where, in that place where we really find ourselves on our face before God. The crazy part is for us to really do that. we got to stop caring about what other people are going to think of us when we do that. Interesting, the guy that will play, replace Saul? Well, that's kind of what he's going to be like. His own wife's going to be like, oh, well, didn't you act in a way that embarrassed me? And David's going to go, oh, I'll become even more undignified than this woman. You, you ain't, I know, Tony, you ain't seen nothing yet. So let's end with a song tonight. A song that, that would be meaningful for this. But aren't you thankful that Jesus did it right? but it wasn't about outward appearance only he totally disagreed with the father in the garden and you would too who wants to be tortured to death but i remember him saying not my will yours be done three different times not my will yours be done how do i call anyone lord and actually tell him my will's to be done and because he did that and died on the cross i could be right with the father because he rose again He's declared the Son of God with power. Because He rose again, I can have new life. So tonight, I want to pray. Daniel, you find this song all of me. And my prayer is that tonight as we sing it, that we, we would mean it. That there would be enough harp time in our heart that the trumpet time would be meaningful. Just pray with me, would you please? God, I want to thank you for this text. This is is rough. I mean, there's nothing rough about the truth of it. but There's a whole lot of rough about uh, about the reality of living it out. And God, I just pray tonight that that would change now. That even as we sing this, it would be meaningful. This would be so much more and just words some God, that it would be really right. Please, would you confess that Jesus died on the cross for us? Would you confess that he did that in total surrender? There was nothing left for him to give up. Forgive me for holding out on you. And tonight I just pray that as we confess Jesus, not just as our Savior, but as our Lord. We can handle that right. Develop a in us, Lord. Proper heart time, I pray.